Primary Purpose Big Book Study Groups, Thursday Night Alcoholics and God Speaker Step Series. Let's have our joke now. Hi, I'm Spencer, an alcoholic joke teller. I've got another great one from Take Me to Your Sponsor. Best jokes and cartoons from AA Grapevine. An alcoholic goes to confession one Sunday morning and says to the priest, Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. The priest asks, What have you done, my son? The alcoholic replies, I stole 50 sheets of plywood. The priest responds, You are forgiven. Now go and steal no more. Next week, the alcoholic comes back to the same priest and confesses the very same sin. The priest asks, Didn't I tell you to go and steal no more? This time, you must make an amends for stealing. Do you know how to make an amends, don't you? The alcoholic replies, no. But if you can get the blueprints, I can get the plywood. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a recovered alcoholic. My name is Rebecca. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noises that might or will distract others. Take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away, and ask God to help you stay focused on the step study tonight. Is everybody ready? If so, let's start the meditation.
going to do the fog light prayer. God, let your love shine through me like a fog light so those who are lost, chasing, dying can find your love through me. There's a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Phil to read Appendix 2, A Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know which one, what one is. I'm Phil, and I'm an alcoholic addict. Oh, spiritual experience? Okay, the term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in the big book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happy for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics had nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-conscious, followed at once by a vast change in the feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly uh, growing relationship, their membership of thousands of alcoholics, such, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few expectations, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God-consciousness. Most empathetically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honesty facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man 
and everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so set your phones to airplane or meeting mode, or just turn it off. And we have session five tonight with Tom. Let's give him a good welcome. Good, good, good. I'm good. A little sad, but I'm good. I'm Tom. I'm an alcoholic. A little sad because uh, a good friend of mine uh, in the program uh, from Los Angeles out in Arizona, uh, his wife just passed. And, uh, I mean, it's not unexpected. You know, we've watched her suffer with ALS for the past two years. And, uh, you know, amends for me... Especially when it came to her, she was always, in meetings, she was always going like this, like my wife, you know. Calm down, quiet down, you know. Difficult for me to do. uh, But amends for me are not an easy thing. Mostly because I, I did... A lot of dirty stuff. A lot of dirty stuff in my life. I was not a nice guy, you know, and uh, and I took pride in not being a nice guy. And uh, I did a lot of things to a lot of nameless, faceless people. I I couldn't tell you who they were. Because I wasn't just, you know, I'm not just alcoholic and and a drug addict. I'm a, a criminal, too, an ex-criminal, you know, so I did a lot of crime. Uh, I worked for an organization. If they told me to uh, give you a message, I'd, I'd make sure you got that message. Because that's what, uh, that's what kept money in my pocket. Uh, if you've been here with me, you know, during this series, you've heard me talk about that, uh, about how I never felt like I belonged anywhere until I got with a gang in the fifth grade, second time through the fifth grade. Nuns kept me back. And when I got with the with them, you know, uh, I found the place where I belonged. And uh, so I always seemed to find a, that place that involved things that hurt people. And uh, I hurt a lot of people, you know. And I wondered, I wondered when I got to this ninth step. I uh, I said to my I said to my sponsor, I'd. You know, I I can't make amends. You know, he had me. We talked about it in the eighth step. I had talked to him about that. You know, what was I? How I, I, how do you do? How do you put that? You, what's the use of putting that down? Because you can't do anything about that. And he, he told me, listen, uh, this is the eighth step. It's not the ninth. 
you'll put down everything on the list. Everything. You don't anticipate how the ninth step is going to go. This is the eighth step, and you list it. You list everything, you know. It's not just a list of names, but a, a list of groups and things that you did to, you know, to waitresses and bartenders and cops, you know. And me and cops, we didn't get along very well, you know. I didn't, I didn't get along with cops very good at all, you know. I, uh, cops don't take to it too well when you spit in their face, you know, and that, I, I did that a lot, you know, and, uh, and I paid for it too, you know, I paid dearly for it. You know, I was crazy, I did crazy things, you know, when I got drunk. What's funny is, is that the crime that I did was never what I really got in trouble for. I got away with all that. You know, it was it was uh, the things I did uh, after the crime was done that it was time to go and party. And that's where I got in trouble when it came time to party, you know, because I was serious before that. I mean, I didn't want to go to jail for that. So what did I go to jail for? I went to jail constantly, you know, for drunken disorderly, Doing things like pulling fire alarms, kicking in windows, you know, crazy stuff like that. Spitting in cops' faces when they came to get me out of the bar. And so I had all these these things that I I really I needed to do something about these things. I kn- I knew that I needed to do something about it. In my heart, I knew that somehow I had to do something about all of that. You know, I, uh, uh, you know, in blackouts, I did all kinds of of things that I didn't even know uh, what I did. All I, a lot of times, all I did was I saw the results later of something that I had done. And uh, I went to him and I said, you know, I, 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 how are you supposed to make, I can't make amends. Because you think, you think in the terms, you know, at, I did, you know, this is about me. But at the time, I think in the terms of, of direct, everything is direct amends, right? In other words, I got to pay this back, I got to go see, you know, I mean, of course I had to go see my father, my mother. My brother, my sister, my friends, you know, and make direct amends to all of them. You know, I, uh, I, I was not, I was really uh, not nice with my, I was the oldest. And when they left and they put me in charge, I made sure you found out who was in charge. Because uh, my younger brother, he was only a year younger than me. You know, I uh, I gave him I broke my hand on his head one time. I gave him several beatings. You know, uh, it's funny the way that your family they love you, 
And they really, you know, the, the response that you get is they, they just want you to stay sober. You know? Stay sober and try to live an amended life. For me, that's what amends are really about. They're, they're about amending my life. Not about saying I'm sorry for the things that I did. But asking what can I, what can I do to make it right? You know, and, and my family always gave me the same answer. You need to change, okay? <laughs> you need to stop uh, being the angry person that you are because I was always extremely angry you know I was always at war with with everybody and everything at war with the world you know always uh, moaning and groaning and whining and complaining and nothing's ever good enough nobody does nobody does this right nobody does that right you know you know, I mean, uh, I got I got tagged with the. I, I remember <laughs> it was two years sober, and and I had a good friend. He's long dead now. He was a great guy, John Lilly, in the old American Legion Central House. And he gave me uh, on my second anniversary. He gave me a. You could tell it was a ball cap. It was all wrapped up in paper, and I and I ripped the front, ripped it open. You know, he said, "Here, here's a present for you. Happy anniversary." And I ripped it open, and, and, and right in the front, and on the front of it said, a legend in my own mind. He said, I think you need to start wearing that, you know. And because that, and, uh, and, and then next, he gave me a, a, a Burger King crown, you know, and, and, showed, me, and showed me the whole, uh, you know, description of King Baby. And, uh, and he gave me a copy of that. And I mean, I've I've been telling this story for years. You know, this that's who that's who I that's who I am. You know, a legend in my own mind, and King Baby. If I allow if I allow my ego, and if I don't live an amended life, and change the guy that brought me in here, and that took a long time for me to learn that. But that's what this that's what this process is all about. That's what the application of the step is about. It's about becoming a new person, not continuing to be the person that I was. And so I said, how am I supposed to make uh, amends for all the things that I did? I can't make amends for that. You can't. What do you do? And he said. Well, he said, you're going to make amends. And the amends that you're going to make are spiritual. You're going to make spiritual amends. And God is going to show you how it's done. And I'm going to tell you, I stand up here after all these years, and God's still showing me. He's still showing me how that needs to be done. Okay? And he's been showing me for years how that needs to be done. And I learned, you know, from, from uh, my mentor, the man uh, who was a great man, Dennis Organ was his name, brought me to God. He used to say, you know, 
when we do something bad, we don't want anybody to know about it. When we do something good, we want to tell the whole world about it. So why don't you try doing something good and don't tell anybody about it? That's the kind of amends I'm talking about, you know. Anonymous, anonymous amends. I don't beat my chest about it. I don't go around talking about it. I do the things that I get a feeling that I should do. And I've been doing that for a long time. I think that, uh, and I, I love I love to tell this story because it's so it's so close to my heart. It means so much to me because, you know, uh, my father he uh, he was always there for me. My father was not an emotionally available person. His father, he used to see, like I was, I was talking about it last week when we were talking about forgiveness. His father, he used to see sleeping in doorways on Skid Row in Rock Island, Illinois, where he lived. My old Irish grandmother, she wouldn't divorce him because uh, they didn't believe in divorce. My sister, who's sober a little bit longer than, than me, because I, I took her to her first meeting and then I went and got drunk. That's why she's got more time than I do. We used to sit and talk with him, you know, about why wouldn't he forgive his father. And he'd say, you know, we'd say, and it would free you from all these bad feelings you've had towards him all these years. It would free you from that if you'd, if you'd forgive him. And he'd say, well, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Very hard-nosed way. You know, when he got old, I was talking about this last week, he'd come and he'd sit with me and try to find, figure out, maybe I knew something to tell him how he could forgive him. And, and you know, he'd say, well, you know, how would you feel if your mother during the Depression is making, taking care of the whole family on $12 a week? And you see him sneak in the house in the middle of the night, you know, and take his money and hide it in the register in the floor so he wouldn't have to pay anything for anything. How would you feel about that? I'd say, yeah, well, I understand. I understand what you're saying. I know how I'd feel about it. But I know, too, that, you know, if you if you just let it go. But he couldn't he couldn't let it go. He went to his grave. Ninety one. Still hating him. And so, you know. He was always there for me. He was always bailing me out, kept me from going to prison. 1978, I'm sitting in the, in the courtroom in Peoria, Illinois, waiting to be sentenced to the penitentiary. And uh, my father had been in Florida since 72 and started in construction, got into real estate, and he'd made it big. Had the place on the ocean, you know, driving a new Jaguar. I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, and I'm sitting there in the in the courtroom waiting to be arraigned. And in he walks with the highest paid criminal attorney in town. Well, I know because his brothers are in the laborers union with me. And they walk up, and, and, and right in the middle of court, they walk up and talk to the judge. He covers his 
hand over the microphone. Then the judge calls me up and he says, well, Mr. Matthews, he says, you got two choices. You can go to Florida with your father or you can go to the Illinois Penitentiary. I said, well, Your Honor, I says, I guess we're going to Florida. He said, and that's where you better go and don't ever come back here in front of me and I'll make sure you go to the penitentiary. And so, you know, we, we went to my apartment and loaded up the Jag and headed south. And that's the kind of stuff he was always, he was always, he was always could be counted on. Because as an adult child of an alcoholic, you know why he could be counted on. Because his father couldn't be counted on. Because his father was a bum. And so who was a bum? Who was a bum his whole life, you know? Me. You, you're nothing but a bum. You can't be counted on for anything. You're just a bum. And so I told my sponsor, I says, I really, I don't, I don't know how to talk to this man directly. I can't, I just can't talk to him directly. And so he told me, he said, well, listen, he said, why don't you write him a letter? Write him a letter and, and make your amends to him. And I said, well, okay. And, uh. It was about three pages long. You know, I, I poured my heart out in that, in that letter about all the things that I'd done and what I was sorry for. And I went over to his house. I said, Dad, I got something for you I want you to read. And he said, okay, come in here and sit down. And my dad was always funny because even with Christmas paper, he'd, t- he'd take it apart real and he'd save it, you know. That's the way he grew up. You think he'd buy a Ziploc? No, he washed out bread bags, okay? They didn't have no Tupperware. Those were all, you know, old butter things and shit. <laughs> Folded that, took that letter out very carefully so he could keep the envelope, and he opened it, and he sat there, and he read it, and and he, and he folded it all back up and he put it real nice and neat back in the envelope and he stood up and he handed it to me he said that's nice Tom and he walked out the door I was heartbroken I was heartbroken and I went to my sponsor and he told me he said you know, well, you know what Tom he said you just got a good lesson you went there trying to be forgiven. That's what you were looking for. You were looking for forgiveness. And that's not what this is about. This isn't about you being forgiven. This is about, you know, you just stating what you did. Can you make, do anything to make it right? It's not for you to feel as though you've been forgiven. You know, people, people, you know, and, and I, this may be an opinion. Well, I have my own opinions. I have my own way of working this program. I've been working it for 40 years. Some people really think that they belong 
on a list to be forgiven for self. But you know, I don't believe that self can forgive self. Just like I don't believe self can help self to get out of self. What I believe is through an amended life, you know, I've been forgiven by God. That's who's forgiven me. And I don't need, I don't need to forgive myself. I need to be an amended person in an amended way of life. Not performing the way that I always have my whole life. But becoming the guy that I should have become. If I would have become, I wouldn't have kept going back out there for 10 years. Because I got here 50 years ago. For those of you who haven't been in here and heard my story. And it took me 11 years to get that first year in my hand. And when I stood up at that podium and they gave me that, that one-year medallion and I looked at it and the first thing my eyes saw were to thine own self be true. And I said, yeah, that, there's the problem right there. That's what's taken this. What's, that's what's, what's taken the beating that I've had to give myself is because I would not be true to myself. Because I want, I, you know, I mean, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And I like instant gratification. And I want to be gratified. That's what I want to be. I want you to gratify me. I want you to make me feel good. Because that's what I'm addicted to. I'm addicted to feeling good. So I want to be, I want to be praised. You know. Patted on the back. My old man used to say, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back. <laughs> he didn't believe in that, believe me. I never heard my old man brag about anything. He flew 35 missions over Germany. He was a B-17 bombardier. And every one of those missions I came to understand were suicide missions. He never bragged about it. He was humble. He could be counted on. He wouldn't tell you he loved you. He wouldn't hug you. He wouldn't pat you on the back. He'd give you hell. When I was a kid, he'd give you a boot in the ass. Construction boot, you know. I'll never forget. <laughs> you know, he had a crazy way of looking at things. I mean, here I am, right? I'm, I'm, in the, I'm in the third grade, and I'm always in the cloakroom. I don't know. Any of the older Catholics know what the cloakroom is. You know, that's, that's, where, that's where they send the kids, send them to the cloak. Because in the old days, I mean, I went to St. Agnes. It was built during the Civil War. You know, you had cloaks. They used to wear cloaks, you know, and, and so they call it a cloakroom. Send you back to the cloakroom. So, you know, I got his uh, 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 Playboy. I found one of his Playboys, and, and I tore a little picture out of there, you know, and I had it in my pocket. And I ended up in the cloakroom, and the nun, nun had me in the cloakroom. She sent this other kid in the cloakroom. And that kid came in the cloakroom, and so I figured, well, he's in the cloakroom. He's my buddy, you know, right? He's in trouble, too. I said, hey, you want to see something? 
and, and, I, and I showed it to him and he took it. He ran up there and ratted me out, gave it to the nun. I had to go see Mother Superior, and uh, she called the old man, and he came and got me. You know, he was building houses, and he had to come out and get me. And and he laughed about it. After we got in the car, he thought it was funny. So I figured, well, you know, not a big deal, you know. I mean, next week I seen a dime on the nun's desk, so I swiped that dime. She caught me, and down, back down to Mother Superior, you know, and they... Sent me, call the old man. He had to come from middle of the winter time. He was swinging a hammer, building the houses. He came, picked me up. And he took me home, and he pulled my pants down, and he, he his, his hands were all cracked up from the cold, and he whooped my behind until his hands bled. In a funny way of looking at things. You didn't steal. You didn't do that. My brother stole two candy bars one time. He took him upstairs, knocked two of his teeth out, and then took him to the church and said, you stay in here and pray all day. And my dummy brother went out playing basketball. He didn't know the old man would go around the block and check. So when he got old, he, uh, he, he was driving my mother crazy. You know, he, My mother would call me and say, your father's driving me nuts. You know, I said, well, what's the problem? Well... He goes to the bank every day. And I said, so he's, you know, like uh, 88 years old. I said, so what if he goes to the bank every day? You know, well, he gets mad because he wants them to show him his money. And uh, they get mad with him, so he's moving the money to different banks all the time. And and I'm afraid, you know, he's going to forget which bank he put the money in. Because he's got, and he's got, Money hit all over the place. I found $7,000 underneath the spare tire in the trunk. So I, one day she calls me, she goes, he's got $20,000 sitting in here, and he's just staring at it at the kitchen table. I says, okay, I'm coming over. And I, I got a power of attorney before I came over. And I walked in. I said, what are you doing, Dad? He looked at me, and he said, I don't know what I'm doing. So I said, why don't you let me have the money? And, and the mail, and I'll start taking care of all the business, you know. And he said, okay. He said, you do it. Write me a receipt, though. <laughs> I said, okay. Then every once in a while, I'd say, how's our money doing? I said, it's doing great. Well, he got sick. He was 91 years old. He got really sick, and He was in the hospital, and he hated, he hated the hospital. He had a pick that ran to his heart that he pulled out nine times. He fought with all of the, all the nurses and everything. They had to put him on Holodol, you know, which is a chemical restraint. They balled his hands all up, you know, like boxing gloves, so he couldn't grab them. And... Uh, they called me. I was up in at this thing in Orlando with my oldest son. And they told me, they said, there's nothing more that we can do for him. And uh, we want you to meet with hospice in the morning. And I said, okay. So I'm, I'll be back to Boca in the morning. And I, I got back down, went to Boca Hospital and met with the hospice lady and filled out all the papers and everything. 
And I said, uh, I'm going to go in and see him. And I, I went in. It was kind of dark in there. He was in the room by himself. They'd taken him off the holodol the night before. And I, he was going like this. And I leaned over, and he looked at me and he, in the eye, and he, and he said, I'm done. And I said, I know you're done. And I'm going to have you put someplace, and nobody's going to bother you anymore. He looked at me, and he said, I knew I could count on you. Twenty-eight years, and I knew my amends had been made to that man. I knew. To me, that's what amends is about. It's about change. It's about becoming a new person. It's about a living amends. No, it's not just about, I'm sorry. No, that's, that won't work. What am I going to do different? What can I do to make it right? What, what do you think you could do to make it right? Stop doing it. Be somebody else. You know, we get into the 10th step and, 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 you know, I think the hardest thing that I had to learn, you know, and to change in myself is that, is that spiritual axiom. When I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. I'm the problem. You're not the problem. The world's not the problem. People are not my problem. All that traffic out there is not my problem. You know, oh, what they're doing in Washington, D.C. ain't my problem. All of these outside things are not my problem. I make them my problem. I make them my problem. And, and then, uh, what kind of life am I living then? When I start making all these problems and pointing my finger. I always love the old timers to say, you point a finger, you got, uh, you know, three more pointing back at you. So if I'm disturbed, it's my problem. What am I going to do about it? You know, 10th step is, is, is not... It's not hard. I, I have a, I've had a hard time for years with guys that I sponsor, getting them to do a 10th step. And it's, and it's not even difficult. I mean, it's as, if you want to make it difficult, you can make it difficult. I mean, I can show you all kinds of charts and stuff. You could do, have all your list of assets and your list of defects and, all, you know, play off. But you're not going to do that. You're not going to write a four-step every night. You know, that's not what it's about. It's pretty simple, really. It's about as simple as you want to make it. I was taught a simple way. You know, thank God for good sponsorship. I had, I had a sponsor. I, I told I talk about him often that went to Bark for nine months. They had a step program. That's where he learned these steps. I know several men that have been sober for over 50 years that went to that program too. I wish they still still taught that program. You know, and he, he said, look, all I want you to do is answer three simple questions every night. Just answer three simple questions. What did you do today that you felt bad about? 
Because you can't keep doing the same thing day in and day out and feeling bad about it. Because if you're going to keep doing the same thing day in and day out and feeling bad about it, it's going to cause a problem. It could get you drunk. Because you see, I'm not the kind of, I'm not the, I'm not put together that way. I can't live a life where I'm doing things that I'm feeling bad about. You know, one of my favorite uh, sayings that I heard several years ago that I really took to is, you can't live dirty and stay clean, okay? It doesn't work too good. You know, we think, we think, oh, Everybody else is doing it. Everybody cheats on their taxes. Why shouldn't I cheat on my taxes? Everybody fudges a little bit. Everybody does this, does that. All kinds of things. Because, you know, I can't do that. I know me. I'm a master of rationalization and justification to soothe my conscience and minimize my guilt and give me the ability to do whatever I think, because I, I think it's okay. But I know it's not okay. You know, I can't lie about if I felt bad. You know, I take, I take a, a, a coffee, a, a styrofoam coffee cup, up, throw it out the window. Oh, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I quit doing that a long time ago. I'm not throwing anything out the window. You know, I've got, you know, the thing where you put your coffee in, I've got, always got trash in there all the time because no trash, not even a little candy wrapper, nothing goes out the window because I can't, I can't feel bad about that. And I know that I'm going to feel bad about that. So if I look at that on a daily basis, what am I doing? What did I do today that I felt bad about? I'm going to stop doing it because I don't want to feel bad. I want to feel good. The second question is, did I, did I rise above my feelings today? You know, we, it talks in the 10th in the, uh, step about pause, right? You know, I mean, the hardest thing has, has, in my life has been to pause because I'm very aggressive. See, I mean, the man that I was when I got here, 40 years ago, that man didn't, you know, listen, I used to, for years I was around AA, I argued with all the old timers in AA. All I did was argue, all I did was argue with everybody. You know, if you had the opposite opinion of me, you know, I mean, come on. I, I couldn't do that. The old timers, the sweet old timers, they just say to me, oh, it's okay, Tom, you got a right to be wrong. And I used to think, what do they mean by that? What's that, what's that supposed to mean? I've got a right to be wrong. You see, because deep down inside of me, I didn't have no right to be wrong. My ego had, had, had me in a place where I had to be right and you had to be wrong. And I'm going to prove to you that I'm right because that's all that mattered to me is that I'm right and you're wrong. I don't live that way anymore. I don't live that way anymore because of the process of working this 10th step and learning to rise above my feelings. I don't want to feel like that. I don't want to take that responsibility. 
I don't have to be right. You're right. You win. It's like the saying goes, would you, would you rather be happy or would you rather be right? I'd rather be happy. I want to rise above those feelings. This guy that tried to help me for years, he, he used to say, you know, you'd never be sorry for something you didn't say. That's just so simple, isn't it? You never have to be sorry for something you didn't say. If you didn't say it, you don't have to be sorry. So don't say it. Keep your mouth shut. You know. I mean, how do you think I've gotten along with being married to the same woman woman for 35 years, okay? <laughs> I, I learned to keep my mouth shut. I'm not always real good at it, you know. She'll be the first to tell you, you know. Most of the time, I'm just teasing her, though. She knows it. Come on, you know. The third thing that I need to look at every day is, what did I see today that I enjoyed that I wasn't a part in creating? Because the world and the universe doesn't revolve around me. It's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful place. John and I were talking before the meeting. He says, you, you got faces all red. I said, that's because I sit on my porch every morning, you know, and drink my coffee and do my meditations and my readings and stuff and let that sun. And I'm a contemplator, you know. I'm, you know, next week we'll talk about meditation, but... You know, I, I'm a big, I'm big into contemplation. You know, I'm big nature guy. I live up in the mountains in Arizona, and I hike every day. You know, I, almost every day, four or five miles a day through the through the woods. You know, and man, it's just beautiful and 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 it's just so peaceful to walk through the woods. You know, and uh, and, and and today I'm talking to a squirrel. He's on my porch. You know, he came up and he's looking at me and I told him, I don't have anything for you. You know, he's wagging his tail around. He figured I was going to give him something, I guess. If I had had some peanuts or something, I probably would have, you know. So I talk, talk to the birds, talk to the animals. I'm talking to God. That's all. It's all part of God. I see God everywhere. I see God's work every place. I see God in every person that I speak to. I'm always looking outside myself. I really find joy when I look outside of me. I spent my whole life looking in at me. That's why I took to Bob Anderson so many years ago when I heard him say, I don't know who you think about all day, but I think about me. I wake up in the morning thinking about me, and I go to bed at night thinking about me, and the only time I think about you is how it relates to me. I said, you know, I think he's got something there. <laughs> I'm getting... Well, I still got plenty of time. Yeah, his, uh, 
Another thing that I like real well, too, you know, we, we talk about uh, in the 10th step, when we do something wrong, we promptly admit it. For a long time, you know, I believed, well, that meant I was supposed to, uh, if I did something, go to you and say I was sorry. And then I learned a different way. That promptly admitting it meant and means to me, I promptly admit it to God. When I when something when I do something wrong, and I learned that from from Bob. When I was eighteen years sober, I was introduced to Bob Anderson stuff from L.A. He says in his book uh, on a mind powered disease, to whom do I promptly admit my wrongs? To a power greater than myself, to God. When do I admit to God my wrongs? The minute I do them. Why is it like this? Because the moment I recognize the wrong, the moment I identify the wrong, I must do something. I must do something. I can't wait. You know, I got a mind like a Swiss cheese. I'll forget about it, you know. And so as soon as I know that, that, that I've done something wrong, I, I go to God right then. And I say, you know, God help me with this. If you, if you, you know, I learned a little prayer from my wife. I love this little prayer. I don't know where she picked it up at. But if somebody aggravates you, you know, it was very easy for us. You know, we all get aggravated with people all day, don't we? You know? Well, if you aggravate me, I learned a little uh, prayer from Kathy. You know, she says, God bless them. God change me. You know, because that's really what it's about, isn't it? I'm the one who's disturbed. You don't need to change. I need to change. It's not my job to teach you the way you ought to be. That's God's job, not my job. My job is to ask God for help to change me so that I'm not disturbed. Where do I, where do I want to be? I really, I really try hard just to be in a place of love. Love's the answer. Dennis O used to say that, you know, he used to tell us in meetings. He used to make the sign of the cross saying, my name's Dennis, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm sober by the mercy of God. And I stay sober by the grace of God on a daily basis. He said, what's God, what's, what's, what's Alcoholics Anonymous all about, Tommy? I'd say, he'd say, Alcoholics Anonymous is all about people. What are people all about? He'd say, well, people are all about God. And what's God all about? Well, God's all about love. And that's what it's all about. You know, he told me, you know, when I first came here, and, and, and he and I connected because we were both old hoodlums. He said, you think you're a tough guy, don't you? I said, so I can, I can handle myself. He said, I'll tell you who a tough guy was. Jesus Christ was a tough guy. He took everything that they threw at him, and he loved them anyway. Are you tough enough for that? I said, man, you're asking an awful lot out of me. You, you want me to love them anyway, no matter what they do. I would go to that man with, with people that I wanted to murder. 
sober. You know, my sobriety has is, 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 is been an involvement. You know, I didn't just get sober, and, you know, all of a sudden, and I was, you know, uh, raised up to sainthood. I'm still not there. I'm not there. We were talking about character one night in, uh, in, in a men's meeting, and, and I said, I was probably about, I don't know, 30-some years sober. And I said, well, I'm not satisfied with my character. And I don't think I ever will be. And I know I won't be satisfied with my character. I never will be. Until God, you know, is done with me and they throw the dirt in my face, that's when the job will be over. Because I'm human. And I'm always going to fail. My God, he never fails me. And I don't have to trust you. I don't have to trust any human being. And I never apologize to anybody for my complete and total dependence in a power greater than myself. Because that's where I place it all. It's all with him. I'm in the action business. I ain't in the outcome business. God's in the outcome business. I let him have that outcome. <laughs> yeah. For a long time, this is this is Bob talking. He says, "For a long time, I wouldn't buy the idea that whenever something disturbs me, no matter what the cause, I'm at fault." After I did buy it, after I realized that it's not important to be right or wrong. I entered a brand new world. I no longer have to prove myself to feel better. I don't have to put you down by telling you that you're wrong. Why should I do that? If you want to think a wall is black and I think it's white, I don't care. Go ahead and think it's black. What you think won't hurt me. Before, I used to get upset with things like that. I'd think, he's a dummy. He's a real dummy. This principle applies to anything. Walls, somebody else's behavior, someone's driving, anything. You name it. The way you look no longer makes any difference to me. You can be who you are, and I won't want to change you. This, by the way is the meaning of the slogan, live and let live. When I finally got my license back, my sponsor handed me the live and let live bumper sticker. And he said, you need to put this on your bumper so that when you come out of your apartment every morning to go to work, that's the first thing you're going to see. You know, I love the slogans. I once heard the slogans are the handrails to the steps. They'll help get you up there. And that became my favorite slogan for all these years, live and let live. I was cleaning out in a club, helping them clean out a, a, a storeroom and found one of the old live and let live signs and I put it behind my desk in my office so that when I was talking on the phone, 
to some meathead. <laughs> I could see that sign. Live and let live, okay? You know, I'm, I, I, uh, well, I won't go into that. <clears throat> my old, he says, my old way was really destructive. The power of self does the same thing to you as it does to me. My old way of thinking made the world unmanageable. It's not the right way to think. In step 10, we promptly admitted that we were wrong. Promptly admitted. This means we admit the wrong to God now. I know I've been talking about now since the beginning of the book, but the concept of now is much more pronounced in step 10 than anywhere else. To continue to take personal inventory means I have to look inside of myself, not in my past, but in my present. Whatever I do, wherever I go, I must be able to do this personal inventory right now. Whatever I do, wherever I go, I have to carry the principle of step 10 with me. A day at a time. Thanks for letting me share tonight. Let's thank the speaker one more time. And here's Brian, Brian Brandon with our second hand report. Terry. In keeping with the seventh tradition, which states that every group shall be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions, the baskets are now going around. We also have QR codes on the back of the chairs. I've asked Zach to come up and read the recovered statement. We read the notice to explain why many people in AA identify as recovered rather than recovering and what it exactly means to be a recovered alcoholic. My name's Zach. I'm an alcoholic. We are not cured of alcoholism. Recovered but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. But we need, but we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, we have recovered. Nineteen forty style big book sponsorship from the forward to the second edition, Alcoholics Anonymous of Alcoholics Who Came to AA and Really Tried, fifty percent got sober at once and remained that way. Twenty five percent sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, came to believe and experience is that God has not changed over time and either should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a seventy five success rate. Is anyone needing a sponsor? Uh, If so, please come up and stand by the piano after the meeting. Uh, Let's help these folks get back to God. Can the recovered alcoholics raise your hands? If your hand was not raised, we suggest you hang out with those who were. And then screen announcements. Uh, Broward Intergroup is where you can find AA-related literature, medallions, and is also responsible for creating our where and when and scheduling the AA hotline. Stop by and visit them. Next slide. 
Broward County Institutions Committee is responsible for bringing meetings into places where people like us can't get to an AA meeting, such as jails, detoxes, and rehabs. They meet monthly to organize the meeting schedules at the 12-step house. Do we have any BCIC members here? No. Okay, next. Uh, the 14th Annual Florida Men's Advance. Next. AA's Got Talent, going to be Saturday, February 3rd at the Coral Springs Charter School. Uh, and then we have the 60th Intergroup Appreciation Banquet held in April 2024. We'll be having their second planning meeting on February 21st. Uh, after Tom, we have Paulette from February 2nd to May 2nd. Uh, we have Tom for one more week. Uh, and then our Big Book Study Guide. And of course, here's our home group's Monday night's Big Book Study Workshop, where the Big Book comes alive. Join us for fellowship at 6.30, and the workshop begins at 7.15. And we have CDs, mugs, large print Big Books, Little Red Books, and Big Book Dictionaries for sale. We meet every Thursday starting promptly at 7.15, and we ask that you be courteous and ready to begin at the sound of the bells. See you next week. tonight's session and all past speaker podcasts at alcoholicandgod.org. I'd like to invite everyone to our Monday night big book study. And to those who wish to thank tonight's speaker, please line up in the center aisle. Let's all do the Lord's Prayer in our seats. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. See 
the light Count my blessings when I go to sleep at night And I dream now Yeah, I dream now And everything's alright <laughs> Oh, man Going on 10 years old, that song is God bless I love you, Mike Chase Bye
Thank you very much.